1: Welcome to another episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I just finished my conversation with Professor Gaurav Desai about his award-winning book, Commerce with the Universe, Africa, India, and the Afrasian Imagination, published by Columbia University Press in 2013. In this conversation, we will think about the intersections of literature with that of history and anthropology, among other social sciences and humanities. This conversation has really Uh, gave me so many insights about the, the shared world between East Africa and South Asia and I hope you will enjoy it too. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed El Mazmi from Princeton University.
2: And I'm your co host, Michael Ramore from the City University of New York. Today I'm
1: here to talk to Professor Gaurab Desai, the author of the award winning book, Commerce with the Universe Africa, India, and the Afrasian Imagination, published by Columbia University Press in 2013. A recipient of Renee a well Like prize by the American Comparative Literature Association. Gaurav Desai is a professor of English at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. By discussing this book, we will explore the multifaceted literary and cultural worlds between South Asia and East Africa. Welcome, Gaurav, to New Books uh, in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you. Can you please uh, start by saying a few words about yourself, that is, uh, where did you grow up, where did you go to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you had any informal child
3: mentors? So I was born in Mumbai uh, you know uh, when, uh, in the 1960s, late '60s, and I grew up there as a child until the age of 13. And then my parents moved to East Africa, and I moved with them uh, to Kenya, to Nairobi in particular. Uh, We were in Nairobi for a year and a half, and then my dad got posted to a new job in Dar es Salaam. And so we moved to Dar es Salaam after that, and I did all my high schooling there. Uh, And then when I finished high school, I came to the U.S. as an undergraduate student, worked at uh, studied at Northwestern University in Evanston, uh, and I found there... uh, Uh, a graduate student, uh, Simon Gikandi, uh, who's now uh, the chair of the department of Princeton, uh, Princeton's English department, but he was a graduate student back then uh, at Northwestern. And he kind of took me under his wings. And, uh, you know, since you ask about mentorship, he's been a mentor to me for the past 30 or so years. Um, And I studied African literature with him. Uh, I was determined to be an Africanist. Uh, not a South Asianist, which is what many postcolonial studies scholars were back then, uh, uh, and so my first book was really in uh, uh, on African studies on Nigeria, on on you know on uh, African literature, and I came to this project much later.
1: Yes, he's an amazing mentor. I can say that. Um, let's let's turn to the book. Um, in your book, you ask. Uh, what happens to our understanding of Africa, its history, its sense of identity, its engagement with modernity, and the possibilities of its future, if we read its long history as an encounter not only with the West, but also with the East? So how did you become interested uh, in the Indian Ocean world? Uh, how did that shape your understanding of Africa?
3: Yeah, so as I mentioned, when I first came to the States, I was you know, I was not planning on being a literature major. I was, you know, thinking of going to business school or something like that. And then taking courses with Simon, uh, and then also, I must admit, being nostalgic about, you know, and, and homesick and being nostalgic about, uh, my upbringing really, uh, as a teenager in East Africa. I was, I went more towards literary studies and African studies and African literature. And the Indian Ocean was not really part of that for me. Uh, you know i uh, i distinctly as i said earlier distinctly wanted to fashion myself as an africanist uh and what africanist meant for most of us back then was uh you know black africa it was all about nationalism um you know uh it was about uh working against the legacies of colonialism british colonialism in particular in the in the east african context um and uh so the narratives were always white versus black they were not, the, the Asian question was not so much, uh, was not as central, uh, a question, uh, back in those days. In fact, I remember, uh, just when I was an undergraduate, that's when, uh, uh Abdul Jan Muhammad's book on Manichaean aesthetics was, was published and was a major, major, uh, contribution to the field. And it took the Fanonian, uh, paradigm of the Manichaean world, you know, divided between black and white in the context of Africa as the paradigm. And it took me several years, even though, even though I had been an Asian in Africa and I had known the community, it took me several years to actually, you know, conceptually understand, uh, the complexities of that world, uh, you know, in terms of race relations, in terms of, uh, uh you know, the, the different, le- different kinds of settlers, if you will. In fact, even in John Muhammad's case, you know, he started uh started off with the Fanonian pa- paradigm of settlers versus natives. And then s- soon enough, you know, whether consciously or not, in his writing, he started talking about conquerors versus natives. And I, I read that as a way in which uh, he was coming to terms with the fact that not all settlers were necessarily conquerors, right? Or at least, you know, Indians were settlers too, Asians were settlers too, but they didn't conceive of themselves. As conquerors, in the way in which one might think of white colonial rule or British colonial rule, so there were nuances there, and uh, and it it took time for even intellectuals like John Mahmud, and then you know those of us who came after, to come to terms with this, uh, to to understand those mixed legacies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Would it be correct to say that the book idea developed uh, in relation to these readings? Uh, if you can tell us about that, and what was the research process like and your writing experience?
3: Right. So, um, you know, in terms of readings, I think that that the two texts that most spoke to me uh, were uh, Vasanji's Gunny Sack uh, and Amitav Ghosh's In an Antique Land. Now, I read g- the Gunny uh first. Uh, you know, it was. It was the major kind of novel uh, written by an Asian uh, African uh, writer. I mean, there were there were novels before that, but they didn't have the same kind of magnitude as *The Gunny Sack*. *The Gunny Sack* was really earth-shattering in that sense. You know, in its scope, its its kind of vast history, its imagination. Uh, and I, I I taught *The Gunny Sack* in classes of African literature. So, in other words, not courses that were specifically about Asian Africans, but just you know, general courses in the African novel, I thought it'd be good to have uh, a variety of perspectives. Uh, I always had some white South African writing, for instance, in that course, uh, usually Kutsia, but others as well. Uh, and I thought it'd be great to have an Asian writer in there. And so I used to teach Gunisak, Uh And so that was one marker. The second marker was In anti Clan by Amitav Ghosh, which really, uh, you know, uh, kind of... Uh, Exploded my my world. <laughs> uh, because you know, most of the work I was doing was contemporary. Most of the work I was doing was 19th and 20th century and now 21st. But you know, back then, 19th and 20th century. And all of a sudden, here comes a text which says, by the way, think about the continuities. Yes, there are there are discontinuities as well, but think about the continuities between the world of the 12th century and our contemporary times. Uh, and you know, what are the kinds of things that Folks in the 12th century were engaging in, uh, in terms of exchanges of ideas, of of, uh, of goods, of you know, um, of everything really. I mean, commerce uh, in that larger, wider sense. Uh, and think about what, you know, what those legacies mean to us today, or what they did to the 19th century and 20th century. So that's what really got me started. Now, again, you know, one one always has to rethink one's own intellectual trajectories. As I said particularly as a South Asian uh, man, as somebody who, who identifies as somebody who came from South Asia, I had made a very conscious effort early in my career to not be labeled a South Asianist. I wanted to be an Africanist. Uh, and I was doing that as a kind of you know, statement uh, because, uh, you know, I, because I knew at that point, especially uh, post-colonial studies as it was emerging, was heavily dominated by South Asian intellectuals. And I couldn't do anything about the fact that I was a South Asian intellectual. I mean, that's who I am. I can't change that. But what I could do was to say, look, you know, let's not focus on South Asia and India. Let's focus on other parts of the world that need to be talked about as well in the context of post-colonialism. So I made a very conscious effort in that early stage. And then, you know, this kind of crept up on me. I kept saying, "Okay, well, uh, even if you're an Africanist. Uh, what you're doing is you're forgetting the fact that Africa was not just engaged in this encounter with the West. It had a longer history of an encounter with the East. And, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. and You're going to have to negotiate that. and You're going to understand that. And maybe if you start looking into that carefully, you might find that you become a richer uh, and and more engaged Africanist, um, you know, by doing that. And so so I inevitably (laughs) ended up with that route. Oh, you asked me about the research process. So so here's something that that might be of interest to you, um, and this is a plea um, for uh, any administrators and any funders who are out there uh, who might be listening to this podcast. Research takes time. Um, you know, I spent an entire sabbatical year in which I had no duties to my institution, no teaching obligations. Uh, no service. I was on a research leave at the National Humanities Center uh, the entire year um, of 2001-2002. And it took me that full year to write the chapter on in anticlan clan uh, So the, the yield was 34 pages of printed text. And you might say, that's a low yield for a whole year's worth of work. Uh, and perhaps it is. I'll let the readers judge that but it was possibly the most fulfilling year uh, of my academic career. Because what I did, what I was able to do in that year was uh, not only was I able to study the text and you know really read it critically and carefully, but I was able to track the over 250 or so footnotes that Ghosh has in that book. Uh, and I actually could, not just track them, but I actually read through them, at least the ones that were in English. Uh, I couldn't read the ones in Hebrew, but I could read the ones uh, in English. And I read through every single one of the, the references that he had. That takes time. You know, that takes time. I read through through thousands of pages of Goitens, Levant, Mediterranean Society uh, books. Um, and and I should also say, you talk about the research process. um it, it was fortuitous in some ways because it was 2001 and September, uh, September 11th had just happened. 9 had just happened. And, uh, you know, much as we are right now, that was a, that was a time of, uh, anxiety. It was a time of pain. It was a time of, uh, you know, needing to, to feel that one needed to be healed. And, you know, the world of the land, the 12th century world that Ghosh presents in an, in an antique land was my escape that's the way in which i said okay the world is falling apart now but back then there was a time at which you know muslims and jews could work together could live together in harmony could um you know could uh you know the all the conflicts that seem to descend you know descend upon us today uh there were different answers to there were different solutions to it that was my starting point by the way and so it was a more it was escapist in the in the best and worst possible way to, to work with that text. And of course, as you know, you've read the book. As I, as I worked on that chapter, I realized the nostalgic impulse which I engaged in myself, but I also realized that that nostalgia needed to be tempered, that, you know, that there were ways in which Gosh's presentation of that word, um, while, you know, something that I Completely supported and as something that I continue to admire uh, greatly, uh, you know, also had its bits of, uh, you know, um, uh, blindness, uh, also had its bits of uh, excesses that needed to be corrected. And throughout the chapter, I try to correct for them. You know, I, I say, well, you know, uh, yes, Indian Ocean slavery is different from transatlantic slavery, but let's not, let's not fall into the, you know, into the error of romanticizing it. Uh, yes, it's true that you know the invasion, the incursion of Europeans in the Indian Ocean world with the arrival of the Portuguese led to more conflict-ridden Indian Ocean spaces. But let's not pretend that everything before was just you know, you know, just love and and uh, and uh, you know, peace uh, because it wasn't. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you for sharing the research experience and and your extensive readings. Um, that made me think about uh, the book in the sense that it draws on both uh, fictional and non-fictional uh, sources. Um, so for someone like me who's trained in history and anthropology, I often think, where do you see the paths of literary studies cross with that of history and anthropology?
3: Yeah, you know, <clears throat> here also I think a bit of personal uh, narrative might help. Uh, when I was a when I was an undergrad, of course, I was uh, both an English major, but also an African studies major. And African studies, as like all area studies, as you know, is interdisciplinary. And I I was taking courses in history, anthropology and and other uh, fields. When I went to grad school, ironically, I found myself, even though I was in an English department at Duke, um, you know, it was a great uh, experience as a graduate student, but I found myself drawn more towards the lectures, you know, and visiting guest speakers and all in the anthropology department more than anything else. Uh, more than I mean I went to the ones in English, but the ones that really excited me were the ones that were in the anthropology department. Um, and maybe this has something also to do with the fact that even when I was an undergraduate, having done the African studies stuff, I was also a student of Dwight Conker Goods uh, and Margaret Rules, who taught in the performance studies department. At Northwestern, and performance studies in, the, in its Northwestern guise uh, was very heavily influenced by the work of people like Clifford Geertz and Victor Turner. Um, you know, and so I had a lot of that training in me, uh, which I took to my project, and I've always taken to my project. In fact, my first book, Subject to Colonialism, uh, you know, didn't have a single uh, single literary reading of a literary text. All the texts I read in that book were um, historical texts or anthropological texts. I mean, I brought the skills of a literary critic to those texts, uh, uh, but they were not, I was not reading novels in them. I was not reading fiction or, or poetry or anything like that. Uh, so I've always found that interdisciplinary angle useful. I think that in that first text, Subject to colonialism, I worked with, for instance, just to give you an example, I worked with a text by um, Akiga Sai, a Tiv man, Nigerian Tiv man, a text that had been used by historians many times, but it had been used as data. They had just mined it for historical information. They had never read Akiga as, a, you know, as a historical figure in his own rights, as a historical narrator in his in his own rights, uh, as a as a subject of creating history they just went to the text for you know uh, okay akiga confirms our sense of the, of the history because he says you know such and such happened on such and such a, a time but they never looked at his his narrative right and so that's what i did as a literary critic i went to the historians and i said look uh let's read this historical text as a narrative of, of you know of its own and, and so uh and i think you know some people found that of interest uh this is now old hat i mean everybody does this now but back then when, when i was doing it it was you know still relatively new in african uh, in african uh, historical studies um so in any case uh you know again amitabh Ghosh is is a is a wonderful example here i mean the the guy was trained as an anthropologist and he's become uh you know he uses that training uh, uh to write fiction to write essays to write nonfiction there's real you know i think i think the best work is fluid you know is fluid between these various disciplines uh here at the University of Michigan where I teach there's a wonderful uh, program that uh, you know is a, a guided program in which crosses over between anthropology and history uh, and it has produced i think some of the most interesting minds out there some of the leading scholars uh in african studies but also other studies uh where you know the the best kind of the best practices of anthropologists and historians and by the way literary critics and and other uh fields uh are brought together so that's that's what i would say
1: great um what is your assessment of the literary and cultural studies of diasporic literature in the Indian Ocean, and what can your study of South Asian cultural production in East Africa tell us about the potential of this field for Indian Ocean world studies and its many diasporas?
3: So by diasporic studies, I just want to just get a clarification. By diasporic literature, do you mean literature of, let's say, the South Asian diaspora or, or?
1: Uh, really any diaspora within this vast uh, you i know. see.
3: okay yeah. yeah yeah so i mean i think i think that you know i think we there is a great future um uh i think some of the most interesting work that i'm beginning to see is work that is done uh with uh the various you know uh, languages that circulate in the indian ocean uh so my work uh you know some of it was written in you know, in Gujarati, for instance, but but a lot of it has been translated. And I, even though I can, you know, I can follow Gujarati, I most of it I I read in translation and I worked with in translation. Um, But there are scholars now who are well versed in in the various languages that circulate in the Indian Ocean, who are working with those, with the literatures that you know, are, are being produced in those languages. And I think that that and have been for, for millennia. I mean, it's not like, this is not a new phenomena. They have been in, you know, for a long time. And, uh, I find that, that that's going to be the most interesting and refreshing uh, work that's going to be, uh, you know, that we're going to be looking at. I always worry though, worry though, because as you know, and I, I'm sure we'll get to this later when we, Come to some of the specific texts that I looked at in my book as well. As we know, um, you know, the circulation and the and publication uh, of uh, scholarship uh, also depends on, unfortunately, depends, uh, you know, on metropolitan values. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. And so, you know, if publishers see think that there is not enough of a market uh, for you know, publishing books on, let's say, Gujarati language literature, um, you know, in the, you know, in the Indian Ocean, uh, scholars are going to have a tough time producing it. Now, the good, the the good part of this is that, of course, now we have more open access uh, avenues of publication, we have uh, the internet, we have other, you know, other means of disseminating the scholarship. But then again, as you both know, uh, you know, we also have to, Change the structures of the academy to recognize that work as work that can, you know, uh, lead to tenure and and the and the various other awards and rewards that the academy has to offer. So those are some of the barriers, but at the same time, I am um, very hopeful for this work. I think there's a lot that lot more that's coming. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I really found your book int- interesting and really productive to think about how uh, the Indian Ocean in many ways have, have been you know, stereotyped as a model for certain things. Um, so in what ways does your disruption of stereotyped immigrants and local groups like South Asians in East Africa or the local Africans in diasporic literature help us think of alternative ways for accessing social and historical experiences in Indian Ocean exchanges?
3: Yeah, so the the question of stereotypes, you know, this this was really you know an important uh, thing for me to think through because as as I say in the book, the Asian in the context of uh, East Africa, but in Africa in general, is always thought of as you know the dukawala, the, the the shopkeeper, the trader, and to be sure, you know, a lot of Indians went to East Africa uh, as uh, as traders and shopkeepers. Uh, Many of them, at least in the context of East Africa, went as indentured laborers to build the railway. Uh, but, there were, but they were engaged in all kinds of professions and all kinds of trades, uh, including, I might add, uh, as we know from people like Mamdani, uh, you know, many, some became academics. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, you know, the stereotype of the Dukawala retains. Um, so, I, you know, just just to take the example of the academic, Right. Uh, there is a case in point that I like to think of. Um, there was a book published in 1956, as early as 1956, by an Indian academic called Ramakrishna Mukherjee. And he bo- wrote a book called Uganda and, His- and Historical uh, Accident, Class, Nation, and State Formation. Right? The book was later republished in 1985 by Africa World Press, many significantly later, right, many years later. But what's interesting to me about that book is that when you reread that book, right uh from 1956 you can see that it anticipates in many ways many of the discussions uh that we later associated associate with people like hobbs and ranger you know the notion of the invention of ethnicity or the critiques of the of the term tribalism now these are as you know if, as all africanists know these are commonplace uh you know critiques and understandings in african studies you know if we say invention of ethnicity, we know exactly what that is. We know the, the kind of intellectual genealogy of it. But that genealogy traces to Hobbes, Hobbes, and Ranger, right? It doesn't trace back to Ramakrishna Mukherjee, who actually, in fact, uh, was doing that work in 1956. Now, why might that be? I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why that might be, including, again, as I was saying earlier, access to those publications, the circulation of those, that publication, etc. Uh, but I also think it partly has to do with the fact that um, you know, uh, the world of African studies, for the most part, with a few exceptions like, you know, early exceptions like uh, Issa Shivji and Mahmoud Mandani, has really be, been carved between white and black academics. Uh Indians or Asians have never really been saw, thought of as, uh you know, major speakers on the Africanist landscape when it comes to scholarship. And yet what we know is that, you know, there are there were scholars both in East Africa as well as in India who were engaged in Africanist scholarship, um, you know, right from the beginning. Uh, Af- India holds all kinds of archives that uh, are useful to, to Africanists to look at. Uh, in fact, I've spent a lot of time in the Maharashtra State Archives in Mumbai, uh, both for this project as well as related projects. And I found material there that Africanists in the West uh, have not necessarily been able to access because their points of reference are usually the British archives or the various national archives in the East African spaces, which are great, which are wonderful, but they don't capture everything that's possibly out there. Um, UNESCO put out a book uh, a few years ago uh, on uh, our, our archives of interest to Africanists that are located in India, um, and that that's a two-volume book, you know. Uh, so there's a lot of information, there's a lot of material out there that uh, is not being accessed. Uh, and again, it goes back to, you know, the fundamental premises that, that we have about who's an Africanist or, or you know, um, sources of legitimacy or, 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 uh, and so forth.
0: Thanks.
2: So I think that's a great segue to turn to the book and its chapters. So Commerce with the Universe, Africa, India, and the Afrasian Imagination consists of seven chapters and a coda. Let's just get into it. So, we'll start with chapter one, titled Ocean and Narration. So, in this introductory chapter, you argue that Indian Ocean narratives have often relied on a static conception of the African continent, one where Africa provides something of an immobile backdrop for the diasporic mobility of South Asian and Arab subjects. So, why do you think it's been so difficult to narrate the Indian Ocean as an African diasporic space specifically?
3: You know, I think. Well, I think the best answer to that question actually comes from not me, but from Ashil Mbembe, uh, and Ash, and I quote Ashil in, in my in that introductory chapter, in which what he says is is that one of the problems around this is that uh, I'll just I'll just um, I'll just read out a little bit of that quote so that you have you can get the flavor of it. He says racial and territorial authenticity are conflated, and Africa becomes the land of black people. Since the racial interpretation is at the foundation of a restricted civic relatedness, everything that is not black is out of place and thus cannot claim any sort of Africanity. And yet, he continues, the repertoires on the basis of, of which the imaginaries of race and symbolism of blood are constituted have always been characterized by their extreme variety. At a level beyond beyond that of simple black-white opposition, other racial cleavages have always set Africans against each other. And here may be enumerated not only the most visible black versus, black Africans versus Africans of Arab, South Asian, Jewish, or Chinese ancestry, but a whole, also a range of others that can attest to the panoply of colors and then annexation to projects of domination. And he lists a whole bunch, including Berbers, Tuaregs, Afro-Brazilians, Fulanis, et cetera, et cetera. So the point that, Bembe is making is that is that uh, in the context of the anti-colonial uh uh struggle and the anti-colonial uh project against white uh uh colonialism whether it was british french uh, or whatever uh, apartheid south africa etc um, oftentimes and for good reason um you know the the, the narrative was constructed as a binary right it was white versus black and many times black included uh you know asians and other people of color it was a moment of solidarity so it was it was not always perfect there were internal um you know there were internal conflicts and tensions some asians might not have fully signed on to the black nationalist narrative others might have so that we talk i talk about some of that in the book but but the but the but the stock if you want to put it you know you know, in kind of like a stark, blunt way, the fight against colonialism was a fight against white supremacy versus a whole coalition of folks who were, you know, loosely structured, loosely framed as black, if you will. OK, fine. It was a necessary moment. Uh, and 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 that was done. Right. What happened, though, is that that narrative, uh, you know, ultimately over time could not quite take into terms once once at least formal structural colonialism, colonialism was over, could not quite take into terms the various different kinds of identities that Ashil Mbembe points out that were already in existence and already prevalent on the African continent uh, for many years, uh, even during colonialism. That included you know, Arabs, uh, that included South Asians, that included Chinese uh, Africans, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on. Um, Uh, And so, uh, and so that's, that's where I think, you know, the, the difficulties were. The second difficulty, I think, was not just, not just that overwhelming narrative, which as I say, and I continue to say, was an important and necessary narrative, uh, you know, in the struggle against colonialism. But the other thing that I think we should also keep in mind is that there was a justifiable reaction to any sort of narrative that looked at African progress or African history uh, as being something that arrived from elsewhere, very good reason right because that was what the colonial narrative was all about. it was about you know Africa was in stasis and we brought civilization to Africa right we white folks you know basically civilized africa that was the that was the underwriting narrative of colonialism so if you even had a hint which suggested that there might have been exchange of ideas of of you know, commerce, of culture, of anything that came from outside of Africa to with to the continent, uh, that was always read with suspicion. That was always read against this overarching framework of civilizational, um, you know, narrative. So you couldn't really, you know, there was no space really for looking to the East uh, for those kinds of, you know, for any sort of, you know, um, uh, narrative of exchange. It, the narrative had to be centering Africa and centering Black Africa. That was the, the need. That was the emergent kind of narrative. And so in that context, uh, you know, looking outwards towards the Indian Ocean was not a priority. Um, and again, rightly so, fully understandable. It was not a right priority. Uh, but as time has moved on, um, you know, as uh, as we go further and further away from those colonial narratives... Uh, you know, there, there are now more spaces opened up to think about those multiple levels of exchange.
2: Yeah, and it seems like those issues of um, solidarity and cleavage link um, to your discussion of Indian Ocean cosmopolitanism, that keyword um, in Chapter 2, which is titled Old World Orders, Amitav Ghosh, and the Writing of Nostalgia. So here you analyze, and this is a quote from the book, um, A Romance with Free Market Economies and the Market-Oriented State um, in Amitav Ghosh's In an Antique Land, um, and how this complicates uh, sort of dominant notions of Indian Ocean cosmopolitanism. So could you speak more about your thoughts on how this term cosmopolitanism continues to represent, for good or ill, um, a keyword in Indian Ocean studies, and how does that link to uh, the term Afrasian, which you use in the subtitle um, and throughout the book?
3: Yeah. So now, of course, you know, a lot has been written about cosmopolitanism since I wrote the book. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, Anthony appears has written on it and several other people have written on it. So it's 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 a term much under circulation. The point I was trying to make is a point that has been made about modernity uh, earlier, which is to say that, you know, earlier notions of modernity just kind of blindly assumed that modernity equaled uh, Westernization, right? So to be modern was to be Western. Now we know now and we've I've hopefully known for a long time but uh, that there are all kinds of different kinds of modernity and that we don't necessarily all have to march to uh, you know enlightenment uh, norms to to be modern there are different ways of being modern same thing with cosmopolitanism uh, the point I was trying to make is that you know kind of the assumption when not all but when ma- many people use the word cosmopolitanism the assumption is that here are third world to use a older nomenclature, non-Western third world folks who who are sufficiently cosmopolitanism which well, cosmopolitan which means sufficiently acclimatized to the ways of the West. That's how cosmopolitan used to be used, right? So if I can speak English well, uh, as opposed to a fellow Indian who might not speak English, I'm more cosmopolitan than he is that's that's a false way of the wrong way i think of looking at cosmopolitanism in fact i make that argument in the chapter on the two indian travelers where you know there's this parsi gentleman elite gentleman who can even pass as white he's very light-skinned who is uh you know who who kind of like uh, uh, assimilates european ways of dining and things like that and so in that model of thinking about him one would say oh he's very cosmopolitan he he can he can you know Live in both worlds, uh, Western as well as Indian. I argue that, in fact, you know, by my the, by my reckoning, it's the other guy, Adamji, uh, who probably is not probably we know was very uncomfortable or or, or not very uncomfortable, but, but you know was not as comfortable as as uh, Surabji uh, with Europeans uh, was much more comfortable with uh, Africans and with other Indian Ocean uh, inhabitants. He could speak several, you know, uh, languages of the area. He could trade and do business in that area uh, with ease uh, without necessarily mastering European languages. I argue that, that you know, he has a form of what I call, or following Homi Baba, what I call a vernacular cosmopolitanism, which is to say that he's much more at ease in the world of the Indian Ocean, uh, uh, you know, uh, than maybe even uh, this westernized uh Parsi gentleman is. So that's what I was trying to, to say about, you know, we need to be careful about what, what we mean by the word cosmopolitan and not just assume or, or, you know, have this implicit bias, if you will, that cosmopolitanism is, uh, you know, is necessarily Westernization. As far as the term Afrasian is concerned, um, that is a, a direct borrowing from Michael Pearson. Michael Pearson use, uses the word uh, in some of his own work. And it's, uh, it's a form of protest, if you will. Uh, it's a form of protest, which we, you know, it's, it's only symbolic. It doesn't go very far. Uh, but you know, why is the Indian Ocean called the Indian Ocean? Uh, if you look at the vast surf, you know, area that, that traverses the Indian Ocean, that this last body of, vast body of water, uh, inhabits, it, it borders, uh, More of Africa than it probably does of India. I mean, India is a tiny little thing up there in the, in the north or in the middle center north of the Indian Ocean. You know, it it encompasses a vast body of terrain, uh, including Africa. Why should, why should we call it the, why has it been historically called the Indian Ocean? So, so it is one way of saying let and I continue to use the word Indian Ocean in my book because nomenclatures are not that easy to to dismantle, uh, at least not by one person. Uh, but at least for the title of the book, I said, you know, let's let's appropriate this word by of Michael Pearson's, Afrasian, uh, which gives at least uh, symbolic uh, acknowledgement to both sides of the Indian Ocean. Or at least these two sides, there are other sides of the Indian Ocean further in the east, but you know at least these two sides of the Indian Ocean, which is, was the purview of my book.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, and I guess the other side of um, those cosmopolitan and Afrasian connections are the colonial hierarchies that you raise in um, Chapter 3, which you titled um, Post-Manichean Aesthetics, Asian Texts and Lives. So here, this notion of uh, post-Manichean aesthetics challenges from the perspective of East African Asian histories. Uh, Franz Fanon's famous description of the settler colonial city as starkly divided between settler and native domains, which you've already spoken to a little bit. But could you say a little more about why it's so important to move beyond this binary conception of colonial power and sort of what do we gain by this ethics of complexity that you discuss, and how does that help us uh, rethink colonialism beyond this binary?
3: Yeah, so we touched on this a little bit earlier, as you mentioned. Um, You know, East African space in particular was never a binary space. Uh, You know there were always uh the Asians preceded the british uh in kenya uh, uh and and you know they preceded uh the germans in Tanganyika. uh so Asians were always there uh the omani arabs were always there other arabs or uh, hadramati arabs were there i mean so so this was a multi ethnic multi racial community even before the british or the germans uh, arrived right uh so in, in some ways the notion Yes, it's true that the settlers, especially in the Kenyan colonial highlands, uh, tried to demarcate a space which was a space between white settlers and everybody else. But everybody else was also not purely, um, you know, uh, settler and native domains. There were spaces... Uh, you know, marked out for Asians. There were, you know, Asian settlements. There were African settlements. Uh, Basenji does this beautifully when he talks in the Ghani Sack in the context of Dar es Lam. He talks about how the city was mapped out between white, white areas, uh, brown areas and black areas. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, Fano's Manichaean uh, binary is a useful one to think with. Um, you know, it, it gives us a certain kind of clarity, but but at the same time, it needs to be nuanced. And, you know, one of the ways in which of late we have seen that happen is through Mamdani's discussion, uh, you know, of of uh, the ways in which colonialism uh, kind of looked at settlers versus natives and, and the different kinds of, uh, you know, laws that were structured and put in place for them. Uh, and that's what the book tries to do is to say, look, uh, what does it mean? in fact i should you know i should i should admit that the book doesn't go far enough i mean you know uh, ideally speaking i should have given uh, a lot more space to the arab community uh, especially in zanzibar um but uh and i'm i've done that elsewhere I've, you know I've, I've been doing work on zanzibar which which looks at the triangulation between arabs um indians uh black africans and uh you know to a lesser extent, white folks, because they wanna you know, Zanzibar was not settled in the same way in which colonial uh, Africa, Kenya, uh, was. Uh, but nevertheless, it it you know, a lot more nuance is needed. I and I, you know, as I say, I I had to I had to draw the the boundaries somewhere. And even though you know the Arab presence in Zanzibar comes, a discussion of that comes through in the Gunsac novel uh, chapter. Um, I am not certain that it's it's sufficient. Um, you know, it should be more. Uh, I would, uh, you know, uh, uh, I would have liked to have done more with that, but again, <laughs> every project has its limits, and those were the limits I think. Like that.
1: I'm glad you're following up on that. Uh, I'll be looking forward to it. Um, uh, you you used uh, the notion of ethics of complexity proposed by Amitabh Ghosh, and that is really productive uh, once you take up uh, these different works. In chapter 4, Through Indian Eyes, Travel, and the Performance of Ethnicity. Uh, this chapter sets out to shed light on the diversity of Indian experience in 20th century East Africa through readings of two relatively unknown narratives by South Asians who traveled to East Africa. Can you tell us how did you come to find and select the analyzed autobiographies and why is that diversity of experience is so crucial to recognize?
3: So this is an interesting story. You know, that book uh, that those two narratives were published in was published by uh, the Friends of Fort Jesus. It's a, it's a organization in 1997. And I think it was published in a very limited edition. I think 97 or 100 copies or something like that. Uh, If you go, if you look up WorldCat, uh, at least by my last uh, count, there are only 27 copies of that book available worldwide. Okay, at least through libraries. I mean, people might have them in private libraries and private collections or whatever. But only 27 copies in WorldCat. This is symptomatic of, of the, the problems we are dealing with. We mentioned this earlier about publication and, and author, audience and readership and things like that. How did I come across it? Well, I had come across uh, the work of Cynthia Salvadori, who I mentioned in my acknowledgements as somebody who was a pioneer in this field um, uh, of thinking of, of working on the lives and histories and biographies biographies of Asians in East Africa. Uh, and she unfortunately passed away before I got to know her or meet her or, or could uh, you know, establish any contact. But I acknowledge her as, as a pioneer in the field. And she had put together a wonderful volume of, um, a three-set volume called We Came in the House, uh, which was basically based on interviews and, uh, uh, yeah, basically interviews with, a whole bunch of Asians in in Kenya and you know uh, everything from people who are working on you know game parks to people who are dukawalas to people who are teachers to uh, what have you you know the whole range of people it came in three volumes also published in Kenya in 1996 by a, a publication called Paper Chase if you look that up in the world in world cat you'll see that there are only 31 copies worldwide available of that book i don't know how many what the first publication run was. So here, you see what happens is, I came across the, the those two narratives by happen chance. I knew about Cynthia Salvateri. I had come across this We Came in Thou's book or the set of three books, and I just looked her up in WorldCat to see what else she had published, and then I came across this book Two Indian World uh, Two Indian Travelers East Africa. I had not really seen it before. I had not seen any citations really of significance that I, that I knew of at that point, um, although there's been some work done on it subsequently. Uh, same thing with the, uh, with the book uh, by Nanji, Nanji Kalidas Mehta, Dream Half Expressed, which was published originally in 1966. Um, you know, if you look that up, there's 28 copies of it worldwide. I think Google Books now may have a version of it on Google Books, but, you know, Google Books is relatively new. So the point I'm trying to make here is that part of the research process was just uncovering and discovering narratives that should be and have been, to me at least, of real historical interest about lives of people who have just been forgotten, um, you know, and uh, have not been part of our mainstream thinking about uh, African identities or um the history of east africa uh, uh and so so that's how you know that's how I found that book. Why is the diversity so crucial to to recognize let me let me talk about a different kind of diversity here uh and which relates back to an earlier question that you had asked about liberalism and and uh, um you know uh neoliberalism and and capitalism and and things like that uh i when I set out to write this book, one of the things I said to myself was that I want to go follow the evidence wherever the the evidence leads, right? Uh, I'm not going to be uh, interested in only good actors and bad actors. I mean, only talking about good actors or the people that we like to talk about. Uh, I want to be able to talk about everyone because that's how you study something. You don't just pick and choose, you know, between people you like and people you don't like. You, 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 You do what you have to do. You go with the evidence. And and this was actually I'm afraid to say, and I know that many of my colleagues will not like me saying it, uh, but I'll say it anyway. This was against the grain of a certain version of postcolonial studies, which which only sought to to seek the subaltern, right? Uh, you know, everyone was looking for the voice of the subaltern. Uh, And in many ways, some of the people I look at are subaltern, but in many ways they are not. Nanji Kalidas Mehta and some of the three people entrepreneurs that I write about in that chapter were very rich, wealthy, influential uh, people in their societies. They were businessmen. They were, you know, they were privileged. Uh, but, But I said to myself, should we therefore just like exclude them from the history because they're not the cool guys who we want to like focus on? No, that's not that's not good postcolonial studies. Postcolonial studies looks at both the elites as well as the underprivileged, and so that's where my evidence led me, and that's why. And I think that's frankly, I think you know, talking about diversity, I think that's why those partly they have not been looked at because their books have just not been available, but partly they have not been looked at because they don't accord with certain kinds of postcolonial frameworks uh, that uh, are skeptical of businessmen. and and men of commerce. And that's what I was trying to say, look, what might these men of commerce have to to teach us or tell us uh, about the complexities uh, of colonialism and maybe even complexities?
2: uh, Yeah, I'm glad that you raised some of these um, political and disciplinary implications of the project because I did want to follow up on some of those, especially in relation to uh, the next chapter, actually, um, chapter five commerce as romance, Mehta, Madhvani, and Manji, which here you do talk about that um, that focus on the romance of the Indian Ocean and especially commerce in the Indian Ocean, uh, which I read as um, implicitly a critique of, again, that cosmopolitan Indian Ocean imaginary and how it's sometimes uh, presented as a critique, a sort of presentist critique of um, Contemporary neoliberal globalization, you know, the Amitav Ghosh model of cosmopolitanism versus present globalization. Um, Do you think this is a fair reading of uh, that theoretical intervention of the book as a whole?
3: So what I was trying to do in that chapter was I was trying to um, lay out what these businessmen saw as, if you will, their own charter in East Africa. And and that was to, when I say, you know, Manji is the one that most uh, explicitly articulates it, the notion of commerce as romance, which is to say that they felt, uh, whether rightly or wrongly, we can judge, but they felt that they were distinct, um, they wanted to distinguish themselves from the British colonials. They said, the British came here to steal your land. The British came here to exploit you. The British came here to rule over you. We, on the other hand, have not come to take over your land. We, on the other hand, have not come over to tape, to you know rule over you politically. We have come as again we can critique this, but this is the charter that they they put out for themselves. We have come as equal partners in a trade exchange. You have things to trade with us. We have things to trade with you. We can do that amicably. We can do that equally. Uh, uh, and and our relationship is a romance. It is not uh, exploitation. Now, as I say, as I repeatedly say, you know, we can question that, but that's the way in which they imagine themselves. And many of them, you know, I must say, especially the ones who became, you know, like large, uh, you know, large corporations, the meta family, the Madhwani family, really did think of themselves as um, being... You know, we talk about now about corporate responsibility and things like that. They really did think that it was their job not only to employ folks, you know, in their various factories and and whatnot, but to provide for them not just not just in terms of uh, pay, salary, but to but to create for them structures that they thought. The colonial government was not adequately providing such as good schooling for their kids, such as good housing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these towns in which they established their companies became kind of like corporate towns in which they built housing, they built schools, they built, um, you know, other infrastructure that they felt that the British colonial government was not providing. Now we don't have to, you know, praise them for it or, you know, or, or whatever, but, but that's what was, that was their way of thinking about it. Uh, And so that's what I was trying to highlight in that in that particular chapter. Uh, In terms of uh, in terms of, you know, neoliberalism or capitalism, you know, I think most of these folks, other than, uh, you know, uh, one of them who actually benefited from state intervention, uh, you know, and, and protectionism, most of them were free market guys. Uh, you know, and, you know, if they were alive today, and if you had wanted to engage with them about globalization, neoliberalism, my hunch is, I may be wrong, but my hunch is that they would have no, they would have no issues with capitalism, um, you know, uh, and neoliberalism, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, they they were not, they were not critiques of, of that system. You, and, you know, and as I say, even in amitabh Ghosh's In An Antique Land, we see that in his later work in the Ibis trilogy, and, and I know we might be able to talk about it depending on how much time we have. But uh, I know that, uh, you know, he has become more critical about that whole uh, market uh, ideology system, uh, you know, that the British used with the opium war and all of that. But in an antique land still has that liberal, uh, you know, kind of sensibility at work, I think, in my reading.
2: Yeah. And so then in chapter six, you sort of follow up on um, some the post-colonial implications of some of these colonial era um, East African dynamics that you were just speaking to. Um, the title is Lighting a Candle on Mount Kilimanjaro, Partnering with Nyerere. So um, a large focus of the chapter is on um, Sophia Mustafa, who was a um, the Asian leader of the Tanganyika African National Union. Um, and so... I wanted to ask specifically a few questions about um, her legacy. Um, What do you feel is the legacy of uh, Mustafa's politics of non-racialism today? And um, how do you see uh, her political writings offering insights uh, on questions regarding the relationship of political citizenship to decolonization and or notions of uh, post-coloniality?
3: Yeah, you know, Sophia Mustafa was a very, very important uh and crucial figure at the moment of independence. Uh and she she really was a genuine partner in Nerere's uh kind of efforts at creating a non-racialist uh state. Uh Nerere was was exemplary in this. I mean, you know, um he really in fact he he um, upset some of his fellow um uh, black african uh leaders uh because uh, he he drew a hard line on this he, as far as he was concerned if you were a citizen it you were a citizen it didn't matter what race you were whether you were black brown white whatever you know you were going to be treated uh, equally, uh, and uh, that was it. That was a non racialist state. And Sofia Mustafa, as well as some of the other Asians I, I mentioned, partnered with him on it because uh, you know they felt that even though he had put in measures that uh, disenfranchised them economically, which he did, um, you know, uh, rent controls and all kinds of things that were necessary to do. And he had a socialist agenda, and he he did according to that socialist agenda, but he didn't do it. In a targeted racial way, and they appreciated that. Uh, Mustafa was also very inter- interesting and important because not only was she Asian, she was a woman, and as I talk about in the in the chapter, she had to deal with uh, what that meant both within the Asian community, but also uh, the nation at large. You know, at a nation that was not uh, used to having Asian women, um, you know, uh, in in positions of leadership. Uh, le- legacy of of Mustafa, I would say. Is uh, divided. I mean, um, you know, when I was growing up in East Africa, which was in the in when I was in high school in the eighties, um, you know, race relations were uh, still, um, you know, still kind of uh, uh, the tone was still uh, the tone that had been set by Nere. Uh There was uh, a lot more conversation and dialogue, which, you know. To the best of my knowledge, from what i've seen has 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 not been the case of late uh I think there have been more tensions i think uh there have been more conflict uh, at least in the tanzanian space um and more divisions than I remember uh as a teenager. maybe that's just my youth and my nostalgia and my inability to see those tensions when I was a younger younger man maybe uh but in my visits uh that I've been to i've I found both uh you know both or not both you know the various communities um uh, having more more difficulty in having the kind of dialogues uh that uh nerere um that nerere encouraged I would like to be told I'm wrong I really would um I would like to be told that that was just you know my um you know years in America that have uh uh you know kind of <laughs> uh, biased me in reading uh, race relations in ways that are not warranted in the Tanzanian context. Perhaps. Uh, I, may be, I would love to know that I'm wrong, but that's my assessment.
2: Well, those tensions um, certainly come to the fore in the next chapter, chapter seven, anti-anti-Asianism and the politics of dissent, M.G. Vasanji's The Gunny Sack. Um, so here is your um, reading of, uh, of Assange's The Gunny Sack as a critique of African socialism in Tanzania, uh, which goes against the grain of, um, I think, much of what's been written about the novel, which sort of uh, is tends to be described as an expression of that kind of generic post-colonial multiculturalism that was announced, I think, with the, I find it kind of hilarious, the Heinemann marketing right on the front cover, Africa's answer to Midnight's Children, right? So it's announced as this answer to Rushdie, which it really wasn't. Um, but could you say more about um, the importance of the specific context of African socialism that you're bringing to the reading of the novel for either this novel or thinking about East African-Asian literature um, in a larger sense?
3: Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, um, uh, I too was uh, caught up in that whole multicultural uh, you know, Africa's answer to Midnight Children. That's how I read the novel when I first read it. You know, I have to admit, uh, that's how I read it. You know, and it, In the the early 90s, I think it was published in 89. But I think, uh, you know, when it was first published, that's how we all read it, I think. Um, But I will tell you this, it's taken me years of reading that novel and teaching that novel to come to the reading of it that I have in this book. um, About it being not really, I mean, even though it's all about the Asian condition. Uh, and it's all about race relations. and It's all about the genealogy of Asians in Tanzania and et cetera, and East Africa. That really the the heart of its critique is not so much the Asian condition uh, vis-a-vis racial politics, but rather political politics, if you will. You know the socialist condition versus um, you know what you saw in something like neighboring Kenya, which was you know not socialist by any means. I will tell you this: when I when we moved as a family from Nairobi to Dar es Salaam, so let me just begin with affect here. Right, When we moved from Na- Nairobi to Dar es Salaam um, as, as, as a teenager, uh, I could visibly, palpably feel the difference. Um, Nairobi was what I imagined, because I had never been to the West before. Uh, Nairobi was what I imagined the West and capitalism to be. There were large grocery stores, stores, you know, um, supermarkets, uh, you know, everything that you imagine, you know, that assumes a kind of capitalist uh, orientation was what I experienced in Nairobi. When I went to Dar es Salaam, it was very, very different. Um, You know, unlike in Nairobi, um, where, you know, the elites could basically, um, you know, call the shots, you know, if you needed something, you got it. Um, because you could use influence and power, that was not the case necessarily in Dar Salaam. I remember my father talking about corporate types. My father was a manager of a of a of a you uh, come of a factory that you know produced utensils, you know, like stockpots and and you know what we call sufurias in East Africa, right? Basic vessels to cook it. And I remember once walking into his office, and there was a whole line of people on the day on which the the. Factory was allowed to sell because they weren't allowed to sell every day. There was like I think it was only on Friday between certain hours that the state let them sell to the general public. Uh, Everything else had to be basically sold to the state and then the, the state distributed it. Right, but I remember on one of those Fridays walking to my dad's office and there was a whole line of people outside waiting to buy whatever it is that they wanted to buy. And amongst those people was a guy who I later found out was a minister. He was a minister, right, on the cabinet, and I was like. Uh, wow, dad, I mean, this guy is waiting in line to get to buy a safuria. And he said, yeah, that's the way Tanzania works. It's not, it's not Kenya. Okay. So on a, on a pure level of affect, it really influenced me. I, I looked up to Nere, I said, wow, this is a really, truly egalitarian society. This is a society in which just because you happen to be a minister doesn't mean that you're going to get what you want, um, you know, etc. cetera. Uh, socialism in Tanzania was a major, it was, a, was a huge experiment. It, it was, you know, you know, people like Walter Rodney came to the university. Uh, you know, it was the high, it was the high hope for everyone, uh, uh, you know, uh, at that moment. And I, even as a teenager, even though I came arrived late after that big moment when Rodney and the others were at the University of Dar es Salaam, Shivji, Isa Shivji continued to be there, of course. But, you know, even though I had I had arrived later after the the high point of of Socialist hope. I could still feel it. I could. We could feel it in the air. Um, there was hope. There was, even though we had to stand in lines for for basic commodities like bread and milk. There was still hope that we were forging towards an egalitarian society. That this was not going to be a society with the haves and the have-nots maybe it was all going to be have nots, but at least that was better than than some who had the haves and some who had the, the have nots. So anyway, there was a lot of hope. And I continued to bear that hope. I continued I, I wept the day Nerere died, right? I continued to look look up to Nerere and look up to his ideal of a non-racialist socialist society, uh, way until, you know, my old age. And I still do. I mean I still think there was real merit in, in what Nerere was trying to accomplish. But what what Vasanji's novel does is it tries to 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 portray the people who are negatively affected by it. Um, and it tries to to uh you know to foreground their resentment. Now it's not a resentment that I necessarily share personally, but then again I didn't lose anything. I didn't lose all my property. I didn't lose the ability to leave. I didn't, you know, so I was not affected negatively in the way in which some of the people characters that he portrays in that novel um you know, uh, lost. As I, again, I, the important point that, as I say, it took me several readings and teachings of that novel to recognize, is that the main character who leaves the novel leaves not as a racial or ethnic refugee, but as a political refugee. He's worried about Nerere's state. Uh, you know, basically, um, you know, shutting him down. And that did happen in Nerere's time. Uh, you know, If you talk to people in Zanzibar, for instance, who lived through that experience, they will tell you about the, the mass detentions that were taking place uh, under um, Nerere's regime. So it was not all as happy uh, for everyone as I believed as a young, innocent uh, teenager. And that's what the novel tries to show.
2: Thanks. So in line with the um, open-ended nature of the final chapter, which is a coda uh, titled Entangled Lives, um, I wanted to ask a more um, open-ended question. So the book ends the final paragraph um, by aligning with Paul Gilroy's project, and this is a quote from Gilroy, um, imagining political culture beyond the color line. So given this concluding appeal to such a prominent and influential theorist of the Black Atlantic, I wonder whether, moving forward, you find opportunities for greater crosstalk between Atlantic and Indian Ocean studies.
3: Yes, I'm glad you asked that question, and I've been I've been working on that. In fact, my current project, uh, which I may or may not be able to complete, since I've just been appointed chair of the department, so I don't know how much <laughs> how much time I'm going to have with it. But it, it really does do exactly that. It tries to. Uh, forge a link between the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean. Uh, there's a preview of this in a pub in an article I published in the PMLA a few years ago called Oceans Connect, in which I look at the relationships between Salem uh, in uh, Massachusetts, Salem, Massachusetts, uh, and Zanzibar. Uh, you know, because there was a, a a vibrant trade between North America, the United States, and Zanzibar in the 19th century. Um, uh, Jeremy Presthold has written on it, uh, others have written on it. Uh, and again, here too, I'll just say, I don't know how much time we've got left, but here too, I'll just say that, you know, there were scholars working on that those issues in the 70s and 80s, but much of their work is forgotten. Uh, and now it's only now that uh, it's being revived again, uh, which is to say work on uh, the connections between North America, uh, United States in particular, and East Africa. I just published a very short um, piece in an online journal uh, looking at the ivory trade. You know, uh, a ton of ivory was brought from East Africa to North America to make piano keys. Right. The If you think about the number of elephants that were killed and if you think about the number of human beings who suffered in East Africa, because those, because those ivory tusks were oftentimes, you know, up, uh, procured in the... Uh, you know, in, in the internal regions of East Africa, and brought to the shore, to the coast, by slaves, by people who had been enslaved, and it was a miserable, miserable journey from the interior to the uh, to, to the exterior. You know, being shackled, but also having these iron, uh, uh, you know, these heavy uh, ivory tusks to carry all the way to the to the to the coast. Several people died. Um, you know, staggering numbers of people died in in this, and this was all. In order so that we could have middle-class families um, in North America and Europe, but in this case, I'm thinking of North America, could have uh, you know beautifully polished ivory trees, um, you know, keys for their pianos. There's a town in uh, Connecticut called Ivoryton, uh, Ivoryton, Connecticut, which is named after ivory because it was the main, one of the main places where uh, ivory was being imported and turned into piano keys amongst others. So I've been doing some reading, reading, writing. I spent uh, last summer doing some research in Um And hopefully someday I'll be able to do more, more on that.
1: Thank you. And thank you for writing this beautiful book. And I really enjoyed reading it. And I would like the readers to have a sense of uh, of that, if you can share with us a paragraph.
3: Uh, yeah, so, you know, what I think I'll read is, a, it's a paragraph that raises questions uh, that I think might be useful for your readers in case they are tempted to read the book, they might they might find this paragraph useful. So I'll just read it, okay? And it kind of begins mid-sentence, so to speak, so please forgive me for that, but, but I think, ultimately, I think it'll hopefully be useful. So to ask the question of what might connect the worlds and the worldviews of the Tunisian Egyptian merchant Ben Yuju and the Ugandan exile Jay, or for that matter, the Indian slave woman Ashu, most likely abandoned by Ben Yuju on the Malabar coast in the 12th century, and Bibi Taratibu, the African slave woman abandoned in the 19th century by the Indian Tanji Govinji in M.G. Vasanji's The Sack*, is to ask a series of questions that are at the heart of this book. What are the possibilities of cross-racial relationships in contexts of structurally unequal exchange? What is the nature of cross-racial intimacy, and how is it negotiated in in times of crisis? What is the relationship between the state and the performance of identity? How do notions of citizenship and civic responsibility affect the ways in which individuals tell stories to themselves and to others about their lives? What is the role of ethnic identification in the fashioning of meaningful lives? How do market forces and economic status mediate interpersonal and inter-ethnic relationships? How do societies that are in transition negotiate the demands of economic justice and human rights? What is the role of cultural and or religious toleration in the making of social stability? What are the limits of cultural exchange? And how do we recognize the difference between relatively equal exchanges on the one hand and forced impositions on the other? What are the ideal conditions for human solidarities? How do individuals with recognizably different affiliations reach out to create productive affiliations? What are the most productive and meaningful ways in which societies incorporate strangers, outsiders, foreigners? How should we adjudicate between the rightful entitlements of indigeneity and the weighty politics of migration and diaspora? How and under what conditions do settlers become natives so i can't promise that i have all the answers to those questions in this book but at least that's what i was trying to ask thank you and i
1: definitely say i, I see a need for this book to be an audio book. to be honest it's really <laughs> beautifully written <laughs> Um, well, Gaurav, we've taken a lot of your time, and I know you have published um, since Converse with the Universe a number of works. Uh, one is co-edited volume titled Critical Terms for the Study of Africa, published by Chicago Press uh, in 2018, and Approaches to Teaching the Works of Amitav Ghosh, published in 2018. Can you briefly introduce these two works?
3: Uh, yeah, well, the, uh, the approaches to teaching the works of Amitav Ghosh uh, you know, emerged as part of a MLA volume on, um, you know, they have a series on options for teaching, uh, approaches to teaching world literatures, rather. And, uh, so they were asking me, and they wanted to expand that, that series to include more Anglophone writers. And they asked me who would be a good, um, writer. And I said, clearly Amitabh Ghosh. And he's, to my, to my, you know, in my mind, he's one of the most innovative, uh, and interesting, uh, English language writing, uh, authors, uh, you know, um, writing right now. And I like him, I again, this takes us back to uh, the question that you asked earlier. I think I'm attracted to his work because it does, you know, consciously engage with historical work, anthropological work. Uh, you know, he, he goes to places, to, you know, and interviews people, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I like that blend. Uh, it's not to everyone's taste. I know that, that Ghosh has been criticized for being, so, so to speak, too scholarly in his writings. You know, people say, ah, he's just giving us a history lesson. There's not enough fiction, fiction here. Well, that's fine. I mean, that may not be to other people's taste, but it's to my taste. So, I, I really enjoyed working on that book, and, and it has a whole series of essays by co- by colleagues who teach Amitabh in a variety of. Institutional contexts and in a variety of settings, you know, undergraduate classes, graduate classes, etc. So I hope that will be of use uh, to folks. And then the critical terms for the study of Africa is actually a project that uh, I had thought of almost 20 years ago when I was in graduate school, or 20, I don't know how long that was, but yeah, maybe 20 years ago. Um, and I was supposed to, you know, I, I thought, hey, uh, you know, it's based on the the volume on critical terms for literary studies that was very, very popular and useful to us as graduate students back in the day. It came out of University of Chicago Press, um, and then subsequently several other volumes have come out. In critical terms for the study of religion and Buddhism and uh, gender and and others. And I thought, hey, we need to have something like this for Africa. We have not, you know, there's not something comparable uh and so um so that's what we did we you know brought together a team of um scholars junior as well as senior um to to come up with a, a set of terms that uh, we thought would be of interest and in use to both you know students you know beginning study of african studies uh, as well as established scholars who might want to refresh their uh, you know refresh their take on some of these concepts
2: Since you've raised Ghosh's work again, I wonder if I might sneak in uh, one more question um, that links back to uh, the Antique Land chapter. Um, I wonder whether you feel that some of Ghosh's more recent Indian Ocean fiction, um, I'm thinking in particular of the Ibis trilogy, which I think has a pretty explicit critique of those liberal free trade justifications for British intervention in the opium wars. Um, I wonder if uh, that addresses, or some of that work addresses the uh, free market romance that you found in, um, in an antique land?
3: I think it does. but I think it does. It very much does. But I will say this again <laughs> because I feel this about Ghosh who, whose work, as you know, as you can tell, no one spends a year of their life reading and writing on an author who one, one doesn't like and admire. So, I, you know, I, I say everything I say, I say with that caveat. But I will say this. Uh, Ghosh has always been critical of free market uh, market ideology and etc. Uh, you know, when it comes to, to colonial British uh, or Portuguese intervention. He was he was that with within antique land as well. So it's no surprise that he finds British intervention in the opium wars and its connection to free-market liberalism um, critical, and that he's critical of it. I'm not surprised by that, right? I think where Gauche's romance comes in is when he looks at networks of commerce uh, within non-Western spaces, which may have been enabling for those people. That's where I think the inner-antique land, uh, you know, Kind of romanticizes Benny Jew and, you know, Boma uh, and and the other trade. Right. So, whether he's able and willing to write, let's say, another text that um, has the same kind of critique of market economics that he has in Ibis Trilogy, but does not involve non Western actors, I'd wait and see.
2: (laughs) Great. So, then finally, um, what are you working on now? Um, Can you tell us about your current and future? Future projects and uh, or what you hope to work on.
3: Well, as I mentioned, I'm I'm trying to work, follow up on this work on uh, the Indian Ocean and Atlantic connections. Uh, some of it has been, uh, you know, kind of delayed because of access to archives and and just time. I've just been appointed chair of the department, so just time to do the work is. is, is uh... Is an issue, uh, and then I'm also working on a different project that is not related to the Indian Ocean, which has to do with the history of the profession of literary studies uh, and looking at, uh, you know, at, at professional issues and the development of the profession. But uh, you know, as I say, this this first book of uh, this first project that I mentioned, which connects with the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, is really meant to be um, kind of a bridge between commerce with the universe and some of the work that that I've been doing. Uh, on Salem, Ivoryton, and it probably will, you know, again, as I said earlier, you know, every project needs to have some limits. I think that the limit on that project is going to be demarcated by Zanzibar. So in other words, uh it'll be looking at connections within with the Atlantic world and in the Indian Ocean world, but from within kind of a Zanzibari y um, uh, rubric, if you will. Uh, so that's that's the that's the plan.
1: Thank you. Uh, and thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored commerce with the universe, Africa, India, and the African imagination published by Columbia University Press in 2013. This is your host, Ahmed El-Mazmi.
2: And I'm Michael Ramore.
1: Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.